Welcome to the Heartbeat Church Podcast. Our vision is for people to live in the image God intended them to be in. For more information visit heartbeatchurch.org.au Giving. It's not something that I feel overly comfortable about speaking in a church. We're all familiar with the saying, money makes the world go round. Churches are no different. Churches have bills to pay. Churches have pastors to employ. Like every every institution, churches need money to operate. But unlike most businesses out there, churches only have one way to generate revenue primarily. And that is through the generosity of its members. See, unfortunately, oh, that's not working, Les. You fix that? See, unfortunately, out there, churches don't have a particularly good reputation when it comes to finances. Many just see all they hear about is churches, all they do is speak about money, all they do is seem to just ask people to give and to give. And to give. And this is especially evident in many of the mega churches out there, all those TV evangelists. That seems to be all they do is to speak about giving and the blessing that you get for giving. And many churches out there, they will subtly and not so subtly make you feel guilty into giving money. They say, You love God. But you're only going to give 10%? You only love God in 10%? 20%? 30%? Is that all God is worth to you? Or there are churches out there that sort of see giving as like this divine stock exchange. The more one invests in the heavenly stock exchange, the more money you get back. And there is an element of truth to this. See, when we do give, God promises a blessing for our generosity. But unfortunately, some people just give. It's not out of an expression of worship for God. It's in many ways just to feed their greed about wealth. See, a gift at its core is meant to bless the one who the gift is given to. Gift is not meant to benefit the one that gives. And in the midst of all these teachings about blessing, about giving, about feeling guilty, about not giving enough, we will hear about churches who have financial mismanagement, pastors and leaders that are stealing money from the churches. And I'll admit the whole topic about giving in church can be very, very messy. But like prayer, It would be very simple just to make you all feel guilty about giving. To tell you a bunch of Bible verses and a bunch of stories about people who give radically and then finish the sermon. But what is that going to achieve? What purpose will that bring? See, I don't want to make you feel guilty, nor do I want to encourage some sort of greed that if you give, God will guarantee to give you X amount back. Like prayer, I want giving to be seen as an expression for our love 
of God. That our generosity, whether it be to the church, whether it be to our neighbours, whether it be amongst the poor in our community, reflects at its core our heart for God. So each Sunday, as we pass out the offering bag, as all the online details for the church bank account is there on the back of the bulletin, when we speak about giving, when we speak about tithing, what is the purpose of it all? Is it merely for churches to get finances from gullible fools to make themselves wealthier? Or is giving, tithing, offering, or whatever you want to call it, rooted in a deeper biblical foundation. Psalm 24, 1 tells us, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And centuries before this psalm was penned, in the fourth chapter of Genesis, after man had been expelled from the garden, we meet Cain and Abel, where after a fruitful season, they have produced livestock and vegetables. And we're told that both Cain and Abel offer their fruits and meat to God. See, even back there, before there was legislation, they recognised that everything in this world belonged to God. Despite all their hard work, despite all their efforts in producing it, at its core, they had to give a portion back to him. But what is very, very interesting is that in Psalm chapter 50 from verse 9, Yahweh declares, I have no need of a bull from your store or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? And that psalm, it seems to be sending off some mixed messages. In one sense, we're told we need to be giving to God. But in the other sense here, it's saying, actually, I don't need anything. I don't need a bull. I don't need a goat from your pen. I own everything all ready. And in in that fact, if, and we talked about this, if hypothetically God were hungry, he would not tell us anyway. If God were thirsty, would he drink the blood of bulls? The answer is no. So one of the issues in giving sacrifices and food offerings in the ancient world was the belief that the gods needed them for sustenance. In giving this meal, the gods would consume it. And then in turn, the expectation was the gods would look after you. I have fed you as my God. Now you need to give something back to me. And this whole psalm, it's comical. Imagine the picture of God consuming bulls and goats. He owns them. He doesn't need them. He doesn't need to eat them. It's not like God is missing a few bulls and a few goats. It's not like he's missing some money from his bank account and he needs it to be propped up. So what's the point in giving to God? It's this reminder of Yahweh's grace and mercy. 
And in offering a sacrifice, we remember the costliness that it is to be in relationship with God. And while this morning primarily we'll be focusing on giving financially rather than animal sacrifices, the idea is the same. Where it be a gift financially, where it be a plant or an animal, the idea of giving, it was meant to be an act of submission. It was meant to be an act of worship. And primarily it grounded us in the reality of the divine and the human relationship. And for our purposes this morning, very, very helpful if we understand two key Hebrew expressions. The word minkah, which can simply be translated as gift, present, or tribute. And the other word is ma'as'er, which means tense. From that, we get the English word tithe. So we have these two words, gifts, tributes, and tents. Now, according to one Old Testament scholar, Daniel Bloch, the idea expressed in these two words is describing a gift given by someone who is inferior being given to someone who is superior, who is above you. So, for instance, say politically, Say a king comes and rescues you and makes a covenant, makes a treaty with your nation. The idea is now that you as the lesser state, you as the vassal nation, you have to give tributes, you have to give gifts, or have to give tax to this higher superior king. And in return, this king would offer benefits to you. Now, remember back in Psalm 50, we learned that the purpose of offerings, gifts, and sacrifices, it's a reminder of the grace and the mercy and the costliness of a relationship with God is. And the ultimate covenant that we see in the Bible is the one made between Yahweh and Israel. Yahweh, in rescuing the Israelites from Egypt, he acts as that greater king, And Israel is like a vassal state. They owe him something for what he has done to them. And in agreeing agreeing to be part of this covenant with Yahweh, he makes a series of promises after freeing them. And part of it is that they will walk with him. And he will be their God. And if they're obedient to him, he will protect them. He will bless them. But part of it is that they have to be obedient to his law. See, at the core of the Exodus narrative, as you'll start to understand over the past four weeks, it's all about freedom. Freedom to worship. Freedom from tyranny. Freedom from oppression. Freedom from slavery. From injustice. But one of the interesting things is that freedom actually is economic freedom. So the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 15 is that his descendants would inherit a land. In fact, this promise of land is so, it's so dominant in the Old Testament that from the book of Genesis through to the book of Judges, whenever the promise given to Abraham or his descendants is mentioned, which is 46 times, only seven of those 46 promises do not contain land in it. 
In fact, there's out of those 46 references, 29 of them refer to the land solely. The promise of land, it's foundational to the Israelites. So when the Israelites do cross the Jordan River and they set their feet on that soil, the only reason they are able to be there is because God has given them this Land. They've done nothing to deserve it. It's not because of their wealth. It's not because of their righteousness. It is a gift. It's a gift of Yahweh's love and faithfulness. And they need to remember the cost of this gift. This gift is the ultimate gift from the divine landlord. And Leviticus chapter 25, from verse 23, it graphically highlights this relationship where God says, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in it as foreigners and strangers. There's another Old Testament commentator by the name of Christopher Wright, and he notes something very interesting in his commentary. That word foreigners and strangers, it's an expression used to describe those people in Israelite society who do not own land. And that's because they're foreigners, they're migrants, they're not native-born Israelite people. They're normally landless. And landless people depend upon land-owning Israelites to support them. Now, what Yahweh has done is he's flipped the relationship. What Yahweh has done in this verse is he's reminded the Israelites that he is, in fact, the landlord, and the Israelites are foreigners and strangers. They are his tenants. In order for them to have any wealth, health, or fertility. It's because the divine landlord has given it to them. God owns all things. Humans merely hold them in trust. And that's this macro level picture of God. God, the divine landlord, giving the land to the people to use. So in turn, those who are dependent upon him for wealth must also be generous with their wealth to those around them. And we see this in that passage of Scripture from Deuteronomy, which Michelle read out, which I'll read again from Deuteronomy 26, from verse 1. When you come, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving, for an inheritance you have taken possession of it and live in it. You shall take some of the first of the fruit of the ground, which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you. And you shall put it in a basket. And you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. You shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God, that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And so the idea is it's giving us this picture of the future. When the Israelites are settled in the land and it comes to the harvest time, when the first fruits of the harvest begin to show, when they appear, the people are to collect the very first fruits and put them in a basket. 
And the first fruits of a harvest, it's a testimony to the life that has been bestowed on the Israelite worshipper. In fact, this basket full of the first fruits, it's a tangible reminder of God's commitment to his covenant promise. This basket full of fruit, vegetables and grain is a sign that Yahweh is redeemer. Yahweh is sustainer. Yahweh is the one who loves me and cares for me, who cares for all of Israel. And you are to remember all that when you carry this basket full of your first fruits up to the temple. However, that basket doesn't just sit there and the food left to rot. We're told in verse 10 as the chapter skips forward, the place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. Then you and the Levites and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your household. So the worshipper who's been given this basket full of first fruits is now able to share in a meal with his family. But the first fruits are also to be enjoyed by the Levites and the foreigners. So this is very, very important for Israelite society, sharing with the Levites and the foreigners. Out of the 12 tribes of Israel, if you go through the book of Numbers and book of Joshua, it lays out all the requirements for where the tribal lands are. 11 tribes are given lands to settle in. One tribe is left out. The Levites. The Levites, they're the family that serve in the tabernacle, that serve in the temple. They're not given any inheritance. They have no opportunity to grow food. They have no opportunity to raise cattle. They have no opportunity to be self-sufficient. They rely completely and utterly on the generosity of, of the other tribes to sustain them. And it's exactly the same with the foreigner. They have no land. There's no way for them to produce food. But that does not mean that the Levites or the foreigners or the widows or the fatherless or anyone who is unable to produce food should miss out. In fact, the longevity of the Israelites remaining in the land is if they are generous. And it continues on there in verse 12. When you have finished setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. So not only does the worshipper every harvest have to collect a basket full of first fruits and bring it up to the temple in order to, to be shared out. Every three years, the year of the tithe, you are to gather 10%, a tenth of your harvest and put it in this special pot where everyone is able to benefit from it. The Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. See, giving in Israel, it was about meeting the economic needs of the Levites and the marginalized. Everyone in the land of Israel was meant to eat and to be satisfied. And there's numerous passages across the Torah which exhort the necessity of giving 
or tithing. But what's interesting is it's not just once a year where you give your first fruits or you give your tenth of your harvest. It was ongoing. And generosity was seen in many aspects of society. For example, from Leviticus chapter 19, from verse 9 to 10, we are told that farmers have to leave the corners of their land untouched. That you can only go over, a vi- you cannot go over a vineyard a second time. You cannot beat an olive tree twice. You are to go through your land once. Harvest time you glean once. If there's still olives on the olive tree, if there's still grapes on the vine, if the corners are left untouched, that is there for the poor and the foreigner. In fact, Another important aspect of giving was the sabbatical years, where every seven years, debt was cancelled, as laid out there in Deuteronomy chapter 15. And it's this remarkable system where it did not matter the amount of debt you had accumulated against someone. Every seven years, it was wiped away. There was no cycle of poverty. Children couldn't inherit a debt of their parents because every seven years that debt was wiped away. And Leviticus 25, it goes on that not just every seven years was debt to be wiped out, every 50th year, so seven sabbatical years, not only were all debts cancelled, but if an Israelite had sold their family lands in order to get out of some sort of hardship, those family lands would be returned to that family. No tribe, no family would be left out from their family lands. And on that jubilee year or the 50th year, that family could rebuild their lives once more. It's a remarkable system. It's an incredible system, in fact, to forgive debt so readily. It's not something any modern country would adopt. For if you just forgave debt every seven years, you would fear that you were going to miss out on your money. But that's the point, is that if the Israelites are going to be generous, they're going to trust God, they're going to trust God that if I'm generous with my money, God is going to give me enough that all my debts will be covered. For the poor were not meant to go without. That reminded you of the blessing that God had given to you. And at a deeper level, your generosity expressed your fear or your awe of Yahweh. And while we might see the tithe or the generosity as some sort of burdensome legal requirement, it was in fact viewed completely opposite. It was actually this joyful occasion where one could eat and celebrate in the presence of Yahweh, where there was no economic hardship, where people were not weighed down by debt and poverty. It was a chance to celebrate God's good gift. And giving, it it truly tested the heart. It tested whether an Israelite truly loved Yahweh with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their strength, and whether they loved their neighbours 
as themselves. And the reason that they gave was because it reminded them that ultimately all their possessions were simply held in trust for the ultimate landlord owned everything in the land. Now that's all well and good for a tribal farming culture that have practices like this. But we live in the modern world. The majority of us aren't relying on this season's harvest to determine our money. We're not relying on whether or not our crops will grow, will be whether or not we eat. We aren't milking cows. We aren't sowing seeds. We aren't feeding cattle. So how does tithing, how does giving our first roots, how does forgiving debt or allowing the poor to go around the outside of our fields look today? Well, first things first, regardless of our employment, all of us rely on Yahweh's provision. The school teacher needs students. The builder needs building projects. The cab driver passengers. The shopkeeper customers. The investor needs investment. And when we start to look at life this way, we start to say, actually, we are totally and utterly reliant upon God for everything, regardless of the employment that I'm in. So we may not be relying on the rain, the sun, the lack of locust plagues, disease, or foreign invading armies. But each day we step out and go into our jobs, we are, in a sense, stepping out in faith and trusting that God will provide for our needs. God will provide the things that are necessary for me to keep my job. And despite living in a nation where all our needs are accessible, we are still reliant upon God. Our items may be processed in a factory, but where has the raw materials being provided. We all still rely on the sun, the rain, and we all still need protection from pest, disease, warfare, and protection from natural disasters. See, friends, we might not own land where poor people can come off and take the leftover food, but all of us need to be generous because it reminds us of the generosity of the one who has given us everything so when we come into work our first roots are going to look different for each and every one of us but say metaphorically when we have that basket full of our first roots it's a reminder that god has come through on his promises now, Christians today, they divide on whether we're required to give a 10% tithe. Some argue that because there's no Levitical priesthood and we're all priests, that we don't need to. Some say that well, we're not under the obligation of the law, so we don't need to tithe. Others point to Christ. They say, well, Christ has fulfilled the law, therefore we should be giving more. The point is not whether we tithe 10% or give more. The foundation of our giving I think can be best embodied by the philosophy of the Apostle Paul, which he tells us from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, from verse 7. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good 
work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. The point is whether or not when you've decided to give, do not be hesitant about it. Do not be forced about it. And do not feel guilty about it. Do it cheerfully. Living in Western Sydney is economically stressful. By the time we get our paycheck, minus tax, we have to pay for transport, fuel, water, power, gym, kids, sport, music, etc., etc. And there can feel like there is precious little left behind. Think deep down, most of us know that we should be giving. But how can we give when we have so little? But what does Paul say? He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. God is the ultimate landlord. Remember that, friends. For as Jesus tells us in one of my favourite verses, do do not worry about life, what you eat or drink, or what you wear. For life is more about food or clothing. But continually seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and the rest, food and clothing, will be added unto you. Jesus just simply reaffirmed the reality of the Torah. If one is generous with God's money, then God will be generous and he will provide. Being tight-fisted with our money, it does reflect a deeper spiritual reality. And on that same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus brutally exposes the conditions of our heart. For he tells us, for where our treasure is, there your heart will be also. N.T. Wright comments, Our whole calling is to reflect God the Creator. And the main thing we know about this true God is that His very nature is self-giving, generous love. The reason why God loves a cheerful giver is that, what, is, is that, is that that's what God Himself is like. Someone like that is a person after God's own heart making a regular, formal, and public practice of giving of money is designed to generate the habit of heart, which forms a key part of what meant by agape love. I'll admit, this church relies on the generosity of its members. But the church down the road also relies on the generosity of the members. In fact, I don't know a church that does not rely on the generosity of its members to survive. So friends, why do we need to be generous? Well, if you're still asking that question, then you have truly not understood the heart and mind of God. For the core of it is that God owns everything in this world. And do I trust him? And do I love him enough to be generous with what he has given to me. And if we're ever wrestling with the notion of being generous, 
and sacrificial, which I think all of us are at some point in our lives. I think the words of Timothy Keller give us a wonderful perspective on what it means to be generous. He says, the gospel gets you beyond tithing. Jesus didn't tithe his blood. He gave his whole life. Thank you for listening to the Heartbeat Church podcast. For more information about services, ministries and sermons, visit heartbeatchurch.org.au.